Welcome to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Hey everybody, James Shepard here. We've got a great episode for you on the Merchant Sales Podcast today. I know a real hot topic lately has been selling merchant services over the phone and you know really how to even bring technology into that equation. And so we have somebody today uh, that we're going to interview from Swoop Business Solutions. I've had the opportunity to work closely with their organization. This is a company that even before COVID-19 was selling merchant services over the phone, the entire process over the phone, and just really killing it, doing a great job. And so just a ton of insights and tips today that we're going to get from George at Swoop Business Solutions. Then Patty talks about low-impact payments. Uh, it's a really interesting topic that's had a lot more relevance with COVID-19. And then I finish it up with some questions from the field. I talk about EMV uh, and some of the issues there with chargebacks um, and how EMV affects interchange. And so we really get into kind of the, the nitty-gritty details behind EMV, which is a great question that came from an agent that had emailed me. So let's jump right into our interview with George. I'm really excited about this one. I hope that you enjoy this episode, and I wish you great success this week as you're out there selling merchant accounts. All right, everybody. I am here today with George Sayuni. George is the president and COO at Swoop Business Solutions. How are you doing today, George? I am excellent. James, how are you? I am doing great. Uh, so Patty and I are going to be talking to George about building a team of phone sales representatives to sell merchant services. Um, obviously, this has been much more of a hot topic lately with COVID-19 uh, and, you know, uh, the economy kind of slowly opening back up. So before we jump into that, George, I know you've been on the podcast uh, a while back, but I'm sure some of our listeners, uh, you know, didn't hear that one. So can you kind of give us a little background on how you got into the payment space and, of course, how you ended up over at Swoop Business Solutions? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I started in the space uh, just a little over 12 years ago. Uh, I've been in sales for a long time before that, but um, in the payment space for a little over 12 years. And I started with a firm in California, uh, which was a small startup ISO at that time. Um, essentially, that company, um, you know, I, I started there as a sales manager, and that company went from uh, 600000 a year almost in annual sales and then ultimately sold at a good mid-sized level for about 60 million. So I had a really good opportunity there to uh, kind of grow through the ranks and really witness uh, a foundation or a company go from startup all the way to a sale. So sure. uh, a great experience with that organization, um, really got some good sales chops and payment processing industry experience there. But then ultimately from there, I, I after that company sold, I partnered with a colleague of mine where we launched our own ISO. Uh, we ran that pretty hard and fast for about five years um, with an exit strategy to sell in five years. And we, we did that successfully back in uh, December of 2018. Um, and then ultimately along the way thereafter, um, I consulted with a few organizations in the payment space, which uh, led me to Swoop Business Solutions. And, and honestly, after I, I met with their executive team and worked with them for, for some time, uh, you know, I was fortunate enough for, for them to kind of give me an opportunity uh, to make an agreement with them where I could come on board full time and, and really help lead the company uh, into the future. So here I am. Well, wow, it's awesome. Yeah, it's a that's really a great, uh, great career path there, George. Uh, 12 years is uh, sounds like you've accomplished a lot. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. It's been a fun ride so far. I awesome. bet. 
So, so George, I want to dive into phone sales. And so, you know, I've talked to a lot of ISOs about this. I've done some consulting along these lines. And, you know, frankly, a lot of ISOs just don't even know where to begin. You know, they've been doing like face-to-face, uh, you know, prospecting. And it's like when you talk about, you know, you can sell this over the phone, it's like, what are you talking about? You know, maybe I can set appointments, but I mean, I'm actually going to like close deals over the phone. So I'm curious, you've been involved since, you know, very early on with Swoop Business Solutions. Um, and, you know, phone sales was the model from day one. It's not like you pivoted to this with COVID-19. So why why did Swoop Business De- Solutions decide to go the route of phone sales? And can you talk a little bit, a little bit about, you know, how that's worked out for the company so far? Yeah, of course. So, you know, we, we do phone sales primarily because, um, you know, we re- let's just say in my history that I, I've done, you know, all gamuts of it, right? Sure. Outside sales, phone sales, marketing, et cetera, like many others that are, that are in this marketplace. And, you know, there's pros and cons to having inside sales versus outside sales. But the primary reason for us to do phone sales is we feel in this market and really and in this environment, the key to being su- su- uh, successful is really kind of touching as many merchants as you possibly can. Hmm. And with like an outside sales model, um, oftentimes the individual salesperson or rep uh, is really their own limiting factor. So, you know, when you're talking about outside sales, if you want to think about how many merchants can they really touch in a day, you know, oftentimes it's really usually three, four, or five typically um, good opportunities in a given day. Whereas sure. with a phone sales model, you know, with the phone sales model, what you're really talking about is, you know, leveraging that phone to be able to reach many merchants and also be able to reach them nationally or even globally if you want. So for us, for scalability and for effectiveness, uh, we found that to be the most fruitful for us. Can I just, uh, I was just wondering, is this something though? I mean, phone sales, I can see what you're saying in terms of you can, you can reach a lot, a lot more merchants, but, um, is, does that sort of like span across verticals? Are there certain verticals where a face-to-face, from your experience, has a little bit better uh, opportunity? Yeah, I think. Well, I think face-to-face is always best anytime and anywhere you need to uh, really gain control of a merchant, and um, if you really need to inject uh, credibility into the sale. So right. when you are, when you're talking about, you know, maybe an enterprise level or even a mid market level of, uh, account or, um, you know, marketing strategy, you know, I think there's a lot of value there. And I think, you know, kind of the old school thought process, at least in our opinion is, you know, even in the small to medium sized business market, you know, face to face is still better just because you can grab control of that merchant right. and, you know, really, you know, earn that sales presentation. However, we feel in today's market, that's kind of shifted a little bit. Uh, You know, we do a little bit of everything at Swoop, but our primary market is the SMB market. Um, And I would say that, you know, with that over the phone, you know, what we found is that what people really want today is simplicity and convenience. And if you can convey that um, in a straightforward and linear fashion, um, you can sell as many, if not considerably more deals over the phone than, than you can in person. Okay. Yeah. And I think really to, to dig into that a little bit, George, a couple of things you just said that like, you know, that popped out to me. I mean, one is, 
it sounds like what you're saying is what you're selling is important. In other words, you know, it's not so much maybe the vertical as it is the solution. You know, if I'm out there selling, you know, some high-end custom POS solution that requires extensive, you know, work on it and everything like that, that that might be a better fit for a face-to-face -face versus selling something really simple like, you know, maybe a flat rate payment processing or something like that. That's more, you know, for over the phone. Is that kind of what you're saying, that it's there, there's different solutions that might be better over the phone versus face-to-face? -face? Yeah, agreed. I think, I think that you got to be agile. And I think that when you're talking about high levels of technology or integration, um, and again, that comes a lot with depending on the value of the account or the potential right. client, right? So, if you're if you're talking about um, you know uh, something that's in the mid market space or even in the ISV integrated sales vertical space where you know there's going to need there's going to be a need for full integration and or um, you know there's a lot of technology involved and yeah absolutely and you might need more than one face to face meeting for that right and I'm not we're we're definitely not anti um, face to face well, of course you know, we we definitely will will attack that as needed for us but. On the daily, day to day, um, trying to gather as many accounts as possible. That you know, we really focus on the phone there. Sure, and I think the other thing that sticks out to me is it's it's really just a you know, at least in my experience working with different ISOs, it's just a different numbers game. Um, you know, when you're face to face, you're going to have less contacts. You're going to close potentially higher. Um, whereas on the phone, you're just going to have like massively more contacts. You might close a little bit less, but the net effect, again, depending on what you're selling and who you're selling it to, to your point, I think the net effect, you know, that's where you have to be smart about it and figure out what model is going to work best. But I think it's just a different, a different numbers game. Uh, is that what you've seen with the different models you've run? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. And I think for us, what we like also about the phone sales is, is yeah, there is a formula to it. And it definitely, it still scales uh, with regards to, you know, closing percentages and pitches in and things of that nature. But what we like about the phone model as well is that it also keeps the morale high, in our opinion, for our salespeople. Sure. You know, a busy salesperson is typically a happy salesperson. So, you know, one of the drawbacks, in our opinion, with regards to an outside sales is, there's usually a lot of downtime going from appointment to appointment or sure. even door knocking or levels of frustration. So, you know, we think that keeping them busy on the phone keeps the morale high, which in turn keeps our um, sales numbers where, where we want them to be. Sure. So, all right, good. So I think we've kind of established that, hey, you know, phone sales is a, is a great model. We're not saying, you know, obviously everybody knows me and that, you know, I'm a big face-to-face -face fan as well. Um, but, you know, phone sales is a very legitimate opportunity and it's something that especially right now, I think a lot of ISOs need to dive into. So, so George, let's shift gears and get really detailed here. So, you know, I know there's a lot of different approaches, different models for these phone sales rooms. Um, I believe you guys are using appointment schedulers that then have like a separate person that does the call to close. Um, can you talk about that? Is that what you're doing? How is that working as far as that the actual model of like how the sales process flows? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So we, uh, yeah, we, our philosophy at Swoop is that we like to divide um, the divisions of labor to be as uh, specific as possible. And we do that for a few reasons, but yeah, we have a marketing team that's uh, essentially telemarketers or appointment setters, if you will. And their entire role is to set the opportunity, right? So we do outbound cold calling based on leads that we buy and scrub, uh, you know, to the markets that we want. And then uh, ultimately they set the opportunity where in turn, then it gets passed to a 
insight sales team, which is essentially a team of closers. And the, the closer's responsibility is um, essentially to only focus on, you know, getting people to know them, like them, and trust them through building relationships, you know, ultimately present a solution that makes sense for them and then, you know, ask and earn, earn that business. So that's our model. Um, we think that that really works because it allows for our teams to kind of really hone in uh, their skills. So each department, the marketing department, as well as the sales department, um, can really get specialized at what they do best. So for the appointment setters, you know, we can hone in on their scripts and their training um, to set the opportunity. And then for sales, same thing goes there, but obviously to help them close or earn the business. Yeah. So, you know, it seemed to me, George, that finding the right people is is, is, is really key as well. Um, can you talk to talk to how you found your callers, how, how you how you recruit them and share any tips uh, that, you know, our listeners sure. might be able to use for, you know, recruiting the right people for this kind of operation? Well, so I'll tell you that, you know, in the past, you know, I've done, again, a little bit of everything where, you know, you kind of do the uh, mass hiring, you do the, uh, you know, if it's outside sales, maybe around the 1099 model, if it's inside sales, there's folks these days um, sure. in this market, especially working from home where they're trying to do 1099 callers from, from their house um, or home-based office um, and things of that nature. So, you know, our focus is we you know, while, you know, through the COVID, we've definitely had to work from home, but our focus is to find the right people that really, uh, first and foremost, fit our culture. I know a lot of people say that, but uh, I think that we are very selective in that regard. Uh, and, you know, and we're looking for people like everybody else, but, you know, we really focus in on uh, people that are upbeat, you know, positive, money, motiv money motivated, you know, still coachable, whether they have experience or not. Those are some of the keys there. But, you know, we want folks that are going to make it feel good in the environment and that like to win and like to high five each other and that type of a, um, a, a sales force. Um, so that's where our focus starts there. And then additionally, you know, you know, getting more granular with it on a, on a management level, you know, you can't be scared to pay them in, in, in mm -hmm. this market. And yep. it, it, varies, it varies where, where you're at. Right. But, you know, with unemployment, uh, especially through COVID, you know, there's areas where unemployment has been doubled. Uh, just talking about the current market today, but even beyond that and previous to COVID, you know, I think a lot of ISOs are really scared to, to pay their folks. Um, and it doesn't have to be an ultra high wage, but definitely needs to probably be, in my opinion, an above average wage where, you know, you can get them in the door and, you can't be scared of the investment because you need to believe in your training ability to ultimately get the return on your investment and develop um, those, those employees and those salespeople. Uh, you know, I really feel and believe that it's your responsibility. If you bring somebody in the door that you need to develop them to the expectation level of the result that you're looking for. So, um, you know, it's, it's a little bit about, being selective up front. It's also a little bit about being willing to pay and not being scared to get the return on your investment. And then ultimately, you know, just really spending the time um, to, to get them where they need to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such good stuff. I love all everything you just said, George, is so true. And I, you know, it's one of these hot button issues for me I've been talking about for a couple of years where I think one of the big opportunities right now in our industry as a whole 
is this concept that you would think would be so obvious, but it's not. And this concept of, you know, making the investment in payroll uh, to get the return. You know, it's the return is control and accountability and culture. Um, And so it's like, you know, yeah, you can have an army of 1099 reps out there where they're all straight commission and that can work. That's a that can be a great model. But there's a humongous difference between that model and having W2 employees that are paid hourly or salary plus commission where you're actually able to educate them you know, uh, have a little bit more control and structure and, 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 you know, control over the culture to really help them achieve their potential. So I'm, I, I'm really interested in that because I know you have run both, you know, models. And so um, it's interesting to hear you talk about this W2 model, you know, as have you found kind of the, the efficiency payoff as well, as far as, you know, from a company perspective, being able to actually implement require training and have performance expectations. Have you seen a big shift there versus like say a 1099 model? Yeah, I mean, of course, I'm glad you asked that because for us, we feel like um, that that's really what it's all about. So when we say be selective with who you're going to recruit, the reason for that is, or one of the main reasons for that is, is because, you know, you, you are controlling the environment. And at the end of the day, what we found is, is if you, if you, if you are selective, you pay well, and then you train well, the efficiency of the results, you could have a much smaller, leaner team, I should say, mm-hmm. uh, and get, you know, uh, as, as great of a result as, you know, those larger scale 1099 teams uh, with, with a much smaller, leaner team that, right. you know, is winning daily, you know, getting yep. deals daily and, and, and feeling success and, and getting the points on the board. And ultimately it, it, it begins to kind of snowball on itself because, once you have that foundation and you take the time to build it that way, um, you know, for me, especially kind of going through a variety of different models, you know, through my career, um, this has been uh, the most fun and pleasurable hmm. so far because we are able to have an impact on the result through the training and the culture uh, daily. So it's been really That's fun. really cool. Yeah, I like That's it. cool. I like it. Yeah. So, um, so George, let me ask you this. I want to talk. I had a question written down that I wanted to ask you because obviously, you know, COVID-19 has, you know, changed a lot of things. That's an understatement. Um, and, you know, a lot of the ISOs I've talked to, their challenge is, okay, well, who do we call? You know, businesses are starting to open back up, but, you know, some are still not open. Um, I'm just curious, you know, I think you're selling and we'll, we'll get to this in a second as far as kind of the programs you're offering, but you're selling kind of a, a, a unique branded way of doing things, but it's things that other ISOs offer cash discounting, um, you know, technology solutions and things. So have you found certain verticals where you've had more success over the phone than others? And, and especially like the last eight weeks or so. So um, I would say with regards to over the phone selling, you know, we have found that um, basically any vertical is accessible. Now, you know, to, to what degree uh, can vary depending on the size of the account and things of that nature. But um, kind of, you know, we, we spend a lot of time with, with the leads in our marketing department. For us, you know, the, the entire model starts there. So on a management level and on a department level, um, we hone into that. I think the key there is that you got to be willing to be agile and be, you know, proactively be willing to pivot on your target market and your leads. Sure. And just to kind of give it, put it into context with regards to COVID, because obviously that's a great example. Uh, you know, we have found certain markets that worked well, especially over the last eight weeks. Um, things like, you know, e-commerce. Um, you know, we found a, a really good 
market with contractors and trades. So things like plumbers, landscapers, um, you know, anybody that's out there kind of doing that type of work and then mobile businesses. So, you know, kind of getting through that first four to, I would say, eight weeks of COVID, we definitely pivoted uh, the majority of our marketing to that. And that worked really well for us. But that said, again, you know, with COVID, the market's actually changing daily. And even without COVID, you still need to be aware of the market on a, on a, on a daily or even weekly basis. Uh, you know, with different states opening back up with a variety of different restrictions in COVID, um, you know, we, we started to shift back to, you know, states that are opening up. Um, that are either 100% open or there's certain verticals within those states that we that are more open than others that we like. Um, so we we just try to stay very aware and very flexible. You know, historically, you know, we would look at our leads on a weekly basis, but with COVID, I mean, we've even gotten as granular as daily to where you know we're we're making constant adjustments sure. um, and movements there to to be as effective as possible. And I think. The key for anybody is just really, um, you know, don't outsource it. You know, don't give it, don't give your lead selection and target market to someone else to manage for you. Um, if you can and you're able, I would suggest bringing it in-house because you're going to know best as to what's working best for you and your sales team. That's, that's such great advice. I mean, I, I, all ISOs and agents really need to hear that. And, you know, it's a difficult lesson that I learned. It took me years to learn that lesson. I would outsource it and things like that. It never really got the results I wanted. Um, and then once I brought everything in-house, it was like, wow, this is just amazing. I actually can control it. And it turns out it's not, it's difficult, but it's not impossible. It's, you know, it's so much more difficult trying to get somebody else to understand our business and what's necessary. Um, so I think that's crucial. So one of the other key components, and you've already alluded to it a couple times is of course, training, um, scripts, you know, the actual skill of getting these individuals to be able to set an appointment over the phone and to be able to close over the phone. And I have to tell you, George, it's, it's really interesting. I never told you this, but you know, you and I obviously work together early on with some of the scripts and stuff, but it's so funny because when I get a consulting client and, and I don't mind this at all, but generally speaking, they come to me and say, you know, start from scratch and just make us a sales process and a script and a training program. And I'm like, great, that's what I do. Sure. Let's go. Um, when you came to me, it was like, you know, Swoop Business Solutions, you had already basically outlined this incredibly detailed, you know, training outline. And so, and I'm like, wow. And so I was able to work within that framework, uh, you know, which was really incredible. And so it was very clear to me early on that you're very passionate about training the salespeople to make sure they have the skills required. Can you talk a little bit about why that's such a focus and passion for you and how that plays out in the results? Yeah, of course. So I, I will say when when um, we did come to you, it's because out of respect, because of your ability to also train. And we definitely use, uh, you know, one of the aspects and components that we use is uh, the video training uh, with your portal. So we, we like to train um, in a variety of different ways. And one of those is kind of our textbook style training, which is we, we really use your platform for that, which allows us to get a good foundation um, and, and we kind of, and through some video training, um, it's duplicatable, it's consistent. And sure. what I liked about working with you in the past is that, and the reason why I was willing to give um, my outline to help you guys work with us on that is because um, I, I believe that we're very much in alignment in that philosophy. So 
um, that works really well for us. But in addition to that, we also, uh, we train daily. You know, we right. really believe that if you're, if you want deals daily, right. If you want accounts daily that you need to train daily. So, you know, it, it, you never saw Michael Jordan start a game before warming up. Right. And I know that sounds right. a little cliche, but we start our day uh, in a very similar fashion. So every morning we spend 30 minutes before our opportunities hit the board uh, and we train as a team. And, you know, we do that in a variety of different ways, whether that's myself or other managers or even bringing in outside vendors. Uh, we, we train daily for a good 30 minutes and we like to do it in the morning because then it can have an immediate impact on the results for that day. Um, it really helps with morale. But then in addition to that, so we have our textbook style training, call it the video training. And then we have our management or corporate training that's done on a daily basis. But also then we tether each salesperson with, um, you know, an underwriting manager or a sales manager, if you will, um, that can give them, you know, live coaching and training while they're working the deal. So somebody, whether they're new or they're experienced, somebody can help hold their hand or, uh, you know, load their lips as needed, if you will, or even hop on the phone and help build credibility and support that salesperson through that process. So we kind of have a three-prong approach to the training model. Uh, but the reason at the end of the day that I'm so passionate is, again, kind of what I mentioned earlier, which is, is you know, as, as, a, as a leader in the organization, and, and I really feel that all of our leaders in our organization believe this, which is if you're going to bring somebody on board and into the organization, then we have a responsibility and really an obligation um, to, you know, help them be as successful as possible. And, you know, and everyone who's been in this space for a while, I think, um, has felt at one time or another that uh, it could be confusing and or complicated. And there's so many changes happening all the time that, uh, you know, I find it very difficult for anybody to be successful if they, you know, don't have high levels of, of support. So that's kind of what our thoughts are on, on, on the training. You know, and it's, it's so interesting because unfortunately when we talk about, you know, a call center type approach or phone sales pr approach, what I find is many of those centers are very focused on efficiency, which is good. You know, of course, you know, we got to make sure you have the right dialer and the right technology and the right management and, and the right efficiency. And that's, you know, great. Um, but, you know, that's only one side of the equation, right? That's, you know, number of contacts per day. But then I've seen a lot of them, George, that look at it almost like the skill part of it is almost an afterthought, you know, like, well, as long as I get them to make X number of dials a day and X number of contacts a day, the numbers are going to play out and, you know, and we'll make sure they have a script they can read. <laughs> and it's like, right. sure. well, you can do that if you want, but you're, that's a brutal game, uh, brutal numbers game you're playing of rejection because, you know, if you can tweak that closing percentage, whether that's conversion to an appointment or conversion of an appointment to a sale, if you tweak that conversion percentage a little bit, that actually is where all the low-hanging fruit is. It's actually really hard to get somebody to make a lot more contacts a day than they are now, but and, and because because they don't want to, like you know, like employees. George, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, salespeople they don't want to hear you say make more contacts. I mean, they know they need to do that, and so you work on that. <laughs> that's right. But but they love it when right. you say we're going to take a half hour this morning and role play. We're going to learn how to sell better. It's like. Oh, okay. I want to do that, right? Is that is that what you found? Is kind of like you know getting away from that barrier of like it's it can't be all about the efficiency. You got to have something in there that's exciting about hey, you can close higher than you're closing. 
And it's also, I would yeah, think, no. a, a morale issue too, right, George? I mean, clearly, if you're, you know, just dialing for dollars without any, without any coaching and support, your morale, you know, and you get a lot of rejections. Morale's going to be low. No, agreed. Agreed on all of that. And, um, you know, that's one of the reasons why we do the division of labor as well. We have a separate marketing department that sets the opportunity. Um, you know, they deal with a, 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 the bulk of the, um, you know, rejection, if you will, not that the inside sales folks don't also, but we want to divide that again to really keep the morale high on, on, on the sales side. And yeah, at the end of the day, you know, your salespeople have to believe in the company and they have to believe in the leadership. Right. And, and the easiest way to get that done is to have the leadership themselves train daily and even perform with the team, you know, kind of that old adage of, you know, don't do as I say, but do as I do, meaning pick up the phone and help them close a deal, right. you know, get in there and, train them live and yeah it's definitely going to boost morale and it's also going to show them that it can be done and it can be mm -hmm. done well and it can be done consistently and and i think that is um really the key and you know and then going back to the numbers real quick just a quick uh, additional thought is that you know i really believe that the numbers and the frequencies and kind of the formulas uh they're very important you know there's no doubt sure. about it but a lot of that i think is over communicated oftentimes to the sales team, which I think James is kind of what you were mentioning, yep. but really, in my opinion, a lot of that is for management, right? It's for management, you know, right. you, know you should motivate people to dial through training and through uh, motivation and through increasing their skill level by getting them wins. And if they win more then they will dial more. And then, right. you know, right. and then that needs to be identified through the you know, through the frequencies and the measurement on the management side. So, um, you know, a lot of times I think, you know, management in this industry will just push that right down to the salespeople, um, you know, and then it just creates expectations that seem, you know, unattainable for a yeah, lot of sure. sales folks. Yeah, I love it. I right? love it. So I've got one more question for you here. Um, so, you know, one of the things also I believe that's crucial about selling over the phone, as we've already alluded to, is what you're selling. Um, you have to be kind of careful because if you're selling the wrong thing or the wrong branding approach or it's too complicated or whatever, you know, you can very easily derail. It's, it's not like face-to-face. -face. I mean, people can't hang up on you face-to-face. -face. So you have to have kind of a streamlined approach. And I've been really impressed with the way Swoop Business Solutions has handled branding and, you know, program creation. So, you know, George, if you could give us just a high-level sketch, talk a little bit about your approach to branding and, and program creation as it relates to selling, uh, you know, merchant services over the phone. Sure, sure. So I think on, on a high level, you know, just kind of, you know, just talking about it in general terms, I think that forward facing to the market, what people are looking for today is clean, simple, easy to understand, easy to access, easy to implement. Um, so everything that we try to do with our branding, whether it be online or through digital marketing, or even when our, our, our sales folks are on the phone is, we're trying to convey clear, concise message and really a consistent message. And for us, you know, the way that we try to accomplish that and, and to do that um, is to have a very linear sales process. And, you know, the way that we approach the market um, is we try to customize and tailor package specific to each business and to each business owner. But we do that through, um, you know, three primary sales tactics where we kind of have an entry level or a starter package, if you will, 
that is easy access, you know, terminal placement opportunity is available, no upfront cost, no long-term commitments. And then we move into other various programs like a cash discounting or even a cost plus program um, that maybe has some equipment tethered to it um, through uh, whether it be financed or a cash sale. Uh, and then we move into a higher level or call it uh, uh, an executive level package where we offer maybe a, a higher level of technology um, through various point of sale systems or integrations, things of that nature. So we kind of have a one, two, three punch. Um, this really allows us to um, train more effectively um, on the sales side and uh, get them a lot more fluid in their communication. But also when we deliver that to the market forward facing to the, to the merchants, you know, what merchants in my opinion don't want to see is, any doubt or inconsistency in the message hmm. just because a lot of them have you know gone through bad experiences in the in the past and so if we're able to convey to them just a clear concise message and really give them the option for them to choose uh we, we found that you know the most beneficial yeah and i think I like you know at, at the end of the day you know nobody wants to be sold anything anymore but everybody loves to buy so we're mm-hmm. just trying to convey in a way where um, you know, people can choose their best option. Um, and, and then it's an empowering experience rather than, you know, a negative experience that could ultimately create buyer's remorse, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. Perfect sense. Yeah, I think I think the big takeaway, for me at least, George, when I look at your programs, is that you have this framework. And so it's you can customize things, of course, for the merchant. But as far as the way you're presenting it, it's kind of the options close where it's we have package A, package B, and package C, which would be better for you. Um, and it's really nice the way you kind of package things together. And I think that's a, a key component moving forward in our market uh, place of thinking ahead in terms of what merchants are going to want and then packaging things together neatly in a, in a concise way, in a way that's easy to communicate, especially over the phone where you've got, you know, 10 seconds to communicate it. It's nice if you have something, right. uh, you know, simple. So George, I really feel like we could go on for another hour cause I just love talking about this stuff. I think it's super interesting and I know our listeners are just getting a ton of value. Um, but what I would love to do is, you know, for those that want to maybe connect with you or learn more about uh, Swoop Business Solutions, could you give a little bit of information out of how they might do that and just kind of learn more about what you guys are doing there? Sure. So, yeah, uh, you can find us on Facebook or LinkedIn if you uh, search Swoop Business Solutions. I think the easiest way, though, to access us is to uh, go to our website, which is www.swoopbusinesssolutions.com. Um, and, you know, you can go ahead and message us from there if uh, any additional information is needed. Um, you can also email us at info at swoopbusinesssolutions.com. Um, happy to connect with anybody personally um, and or, you know, get anyone on our team to connect with you as needed. Well, that's so I awesome. really appreciate it. Patty and James, uh, it's been a pleasure, and I always enjoy having conversations with you both. Oh, enjoyed it a lot, George. Thank you. Thanks, George. Hey, have a great day. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by The Green Sheet. For nearly 40 years, The Green Sheet has been the go-to source for news, analysis, and educational tools that empower and connect payments professionals. If you're not reading The Green Sheet already, check it out on the web today at www.greensheet.com.
But James, you know, we've talked a lot um, in theoretical terms about uh, less contact payments, but now there's some data to back up our assertions that oh, okay. the coronavirus pandemic is pushing more consumers and merchants towards digital payment options. Um, the research and consulting firm IDC reports that high-impact payment interactions, particularly those involving cash and signatures, are in rapid decline. Hmm. Uh, con- consumers increasingly want electronic payment options, especially contactless and mobile, IDC said, and they predict these behavioral changes are going to persist long after the pandemic passes. Hmm. So uh, IDC recommends that participants across the value chain, issuers, acquirers, merchants, take steps now to expand access to and the availability of contactless payments, both in terms of mobile and card form. And uh, so here's some data to sort of back that up. That uh, A survey of consumers conducted by IDC found 43% are changing their payment behavior due to the disease concern. Uh, 10.2% of consumers say they're using car- contactless cards more and almost the same percent are using mobile more often. Hmm. Now, IDC, this is what's interesting in the report that I uh, was reading. They said that uh, several major grocery chains in the U.S. are, are changing out uh, POS systems to minimize contact. Hmm. Wow. Well, yeah, they said Walmart has announced it's updating its Walmart Pay app so that it no longer requires customers to select a payment method, thereby eliminating the need to touch a terminal. Right. Okay. Uh, and then Publix, which is a supermarket across the southeast, I think it's headquartered in Florida, uh, just rolled out a contactless payment option at all of its stores. Hmm. Um, you know, social di- distancing, meanwhile, is ex- accelerating the shift to e-commerce, as we've discussed before, as well as remote art, uh, ordering and card not present payments, um, and obviously expanding the reach of these options. Excuse me. Online ordering of groceries and prepared foods, not to mention toilet paper and other life necessities, appear to be growing rapidly, um, as are QSR pay-ahead mobile apps. Um, who is this? Uh, Aaron Press, uh, who is the uh, consult, uh, the uh, analyst that did this uh, report, said, as is true with other short-term catalysts, even when things return to normal and return to something resembling normal, many of these payment behaviors will stick. Consumers will discover that they like the process of remote ordering, and many of them will continue to leverage the capability among uh, beyond the immediate need. Sure. And which is something that we've talked about before as well. But, uh, and, you know, here's what, you know, he, he said um, payment processors and, and merchants should be doing. You know, the uh, processors... Uh, should be proactively engaging customers to help them take full advantage of programs that can reduce unnecessary contact. Sure. Um, you know, like we said, as we've said in the past, get them using contactless. You know, show them that their EMV terminals can probably handle contactless as well. Um, merchants should be pursuing the ability to accept contactless and where f- feasible remote ordering and payment. They should also be adapting business practices that reduce customer contact, such as no signature rules and customer-facing hardware. Hmm. And uh, merchants who are new to remote payments should be attentive. This is the sort of the caveat. Should be attentive to the potential for increased fraud 
risk and implement appropriate controls. Sure. And you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I'll give a little shout out to um, Mark Beauchamp and the bank card life community. Um, mm-hmm. I uh, am a member of that as well. And I, I was in there uh, yesterday, I think it was Mark posted um, really interesting, a screenshot he did of something that the state of Texas just sent out to all businesses, you know, all Texas businesses. Uh-huh. And they were making some recommendations as they are opening up their economy. Sure. And then they're kind of leading a charge there. They're opening up pretty quickly. Um, and it was very interesting because like literally one of the main things that was just right there featured, it was kind of like a here keys to keys to reopening your business, you know, right. and right there contactless payments. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, wow. I mean, if I was a rep in Texas, I would like all my merchants, you know, all my prospects would be seeing that every time I walked in the door. Um, mm-hmm. and so I think, you know, and as you mentioned, there's other guidelines coming down and I think that, this is just one of those, you know, our our industry is one of those industries where y- you have to be on the lookout for the change before uh, like before it happens. Yeah, and it's like yes. that's the that's the opportunity that you're you're always looking for that crack because it's like mm-hmm. if you don't find that little crack that you can get into there, you know, it's like well, you know, the, our, our whole industry is predicated on status quo. It's very difficult to get people to switch. It's like trying to sell right. people electric service or something, you know, right. they've already got processing. It's already going to their bank account. They're pretty happy with it. So how do you get a foot in the door? And the way to do it is you're always looking for that next thing. Is it cash discounting? Is it surcharging? Is it EMV, which is what it was a few years ago? Mm-hmm. Is it the fact that the VX 520 is end of life here pretty soon? soon. Um, and now it's like, okay, it's contactless. You know, right, you right. can go and you can get these screenshots from <clears throat> your state or whatever that are recommending it, or you can find these information, the stuff like Patty's talking about, get this data in front of your merchants and like, Hey, this is happening. You need to be prepared for this. And, um, I think it's just, uh, I think it's, uh, the most underrated opportunity in the industry right now. I think people are, I think it's one of these things where, I, what I'm seeing, Patty, is processors are notifying their existing merchants, mm-hmm. but this is not being leveraged anywhere near what it should be in the sales process yet. Right. I agree. I agree. In fact, you know, I saw, um, I'm not sure if it was on your Facebook group or another Facebook group, um, you know, pretty early on during the pandemic, uh, D. Carawadra, who we've interviewed before, um, you know, posted this thing about, you know, cash is dirty. This is the best time to be promoting digital payments. Yep. You know, and, and I kind of laugh. It's like, yeah, cash is dirty, but you know, I'm, I'm of that generation. I still keep cash in my pocket. Right. Um, but it was like, you're right, D. I mean, it, 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 right now here you have all these people, this is even before all the closed, you know, the shutdowns. It's like, yeah, go out there and sell digital because people are concerned about disease. Yep. And yep. anything you can do to alleviate those fears are not going to only help consumers, they're going to help the merchants that are leveraging them. Yeah. Well, and I think too, I think there's also this other aspect of it as well, which is you know, so like I'll give you an example. I mean, where I live, I'm in central Pennsylvania where it's kind of like, you know, uh, you know, freedom rules here, you know. Right. So, right. everybody's kind of like you know, we don't care about the state, you know, guidelines and all this kind of stuff. And so we, we deal with that. But I think what it is, is that a lot of business owners, like as they're starting to reopen, I think it's also incumbent on them to where all of a sudden every little bit helps. Everything is important because, you know, if you really want to get your business opened up, you know, you want to do everything possible just to show the state regulators, the 
you know, mm-hmm. the powers that be to show them that, you know, hey, yes, we're reopening, but we're doing so where we're taking things, you know, very seriously and we, we take the virus seriously. And so I think and there's people's that health <clears throat> seriously right. and contagion seriously. Right. And so I, I think it's that balancing act. And I think, you know, sales uh, people, I think it's I think it's going to be crucial for salespeople to kind of recognize what am I dealing with here? Is this a merchant that is all about you know, I don't care about all this virus stuff, you know, because right, there's a lot right. of merchants out there. It's, I mean, a lot of people out there, there's they a have lot a of belief, right? like that, but yeah. are all their customers of the same mindset? Exactly. But it's like approaching it from, in that case, I would approach it like, well, hey, I can respect your opinion, but, you know, you're de- you do realize, obviously, a percentage of your customers, a large percentage, are going to have a concern. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want to handle them. Or is it maybe a merchant that's that's actually concerned about the virus and concerned about the health? And it's like, well, since you have that concern, here's what we can offer. And so I think in both of those cases, I think contactless really fits nicely into that conversation. Yeah. And I just think, you know, one of the things that the, the message that rings clear and I think has for the last several weeks in our podcast is, you know, this this is a downtime, but it's also an opportunity. Oh, 100 you percent. Know, so many opportunities and this business more than a lot of other businesses are really positioned to leverage those opportunities. Yep. I could not agree with you more, Patty. Good stuff. Love it. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by ccsalespro.com, the leader in merchant sales training and technology. If you're an individual merchant sales professional, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash training to get a free 14-day trial of our all-access pass. If you manage a team of merchant sales professionals, visit ccsalespro.com forward slash ISO to learn how we can help you grow. And now, here is Questions from the Field with James Shepard. Awesome. Hey, everybody. So today in the Questions from the Field, uh, I got a great question from Danny. And uh, it was really an interesting one. And I wanted to do this with Patty because I thought she might have some insights as well. So it says... um, what is the interchange difference between dipping a card versus swiping a card with a chip on a POS? That's the first part of the question. Now, Patty, to my knowledge, there is no difference in interchange between that's those two my scenarios. understanding too. Yes. Okay, that's what I thought, and so I think where the difference is more on the on the risk side of it. Um, mm-hmm. Which here's the second part of the question: Does the merchant lose their chargeback protection? If swiping versus dipping an EMV card. Okay, so he's saying if you swipe the card versus dip the card, right, so it's and a, the transaction it, is charged back. There's a you know there's a charge back. Right. Does he does the merchant lose eat the protection? The loss? Where you know, in my understanding, and then you know maybe you can correct me or or you know add some to this, but my understanding is there's there's different types of chargebacks. So if we have a chargeback where somebody says, I never purchased that, you know, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if they're saying it's fraud related, then I believe that's where it makes a difference, right? Like if you, if you, you know, because if a, if a fraudster comes in and uses a card that is EMV capable, and if the merchant had an EMV terminal, it would have picked that up and said, no, you got to insert it. Right. But because they weren't EMV set up, they did the swipe transaction that should have been EMV and then fraud related. Then I think the merchant has a loss in that situation. Is that right? Correct. 
That's okay. the way I understand All it. Right. Yes. And then that's it. That's the that's really the only difference because if it's a chargeback where somebody just says, "Hey, this, you know, my dress this was didn't fit," defective or whatever. Right, right. Right. Then this doesn't really come into play. Then it's still a matter of just you know, it has nothing to do with the payment type at all. It's just a matter of they bought something and they're they're claiming that they didn't get what they paid for. Right. But the the way those, as I understand it, the way that the, the liability shift works, you know, because right. this is what it was talking about was the liability shift. Yes. Is that if it's fraudulent, the merchant has basically has to eat the, eat the loss. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So, so here's the last, the third part of his question on this. So if we set the merchant up as an e-commerce card, not present versus card present, my understanding is if the POS doesn't process a chip card using an EMV device, the card interchange is automatically downgraded. Um, I think this is also true if we set the merchant up as an e-commerce account, the interchange is higher, but they do not keep, um, but they, but they, but do they keep the card not present chargeback protection? So, so here's the situation. I'll, again, I'll, we'll do the same thing, Patty. I'll say what I think and let me know. Yeah, what you sure. Think. So my understanding is when we're talking about e-commerce at, at this point, EMV has really no impact whatsoever because not. Right. Because you can't do it. It's chip. And so right. with e-commerce, uh, whether it's, you know, the EMV has no bearing whatsoever. So obviously the interchange is going to be a little different because it's not card present. It's card not present, which has mm. different, slightly higher interchange rates. But as right. far as EMV and chargebacks and fraud protection, EMV has no bearing on that whatsoever because it's it's e-commerce. Right. right? The, on the, uh, but, the you know, the e-commerce merchant does have tools that they can use to, to protect against fraud you know well, i mean sure i i just uh the other day i was doing a telephone order right and right. i was really curious because you know i gave them my card number i gave them my expiration date and they're like okay now what's your cvv code and i was like oh good i'm glad you know because <laughs> right. you're making sure it's really me <laughs> you're making sure it's really me and so those are the kind of things when you set up an e-commerce merchant if you want to want them to protect against it's a very simple thing right even on online yes um you know i have i i think it's google i have google set up so if i buy something online right and google will be like hey do you want to use this card patty and and i say yes and they're like okay well what's your cvv and once i put in right. my cvv google fills everything else out for me yeah and yeah. You know, those kinds of things, I mean, as a consumer, that makes me feel secure. Right. And I think as a merchant, it would make them feel a lot more secure. Yeah, for because sure. Because that's the problem with EMV is that's why so much of the fraud shifted to the uh, e-commerce channel. Right. Because of EMV. Right. Because of EMV. Yeah. It's harder to it's harder to do fraud in person. So now they're doing it online. I'm um, just stealing cardholder information. They don't even need the physical card. Right. Um, and, and there's no EMV. And so, yeah, I agree. I think the only other part to that question that just to clarify, I mean, nothing about what we just talked about has anything to do with a downgrade. In other words, right. um, from an interchange perspective, the EMV conversation has to do with risk and fraud protection. It has nothing to do with interchange. Um, right. So, right. you know, again, card present versus card not present. There are different interchange categories there. But as far as a transaction being downgraded, it's not like if you swipe an EMV card that it's going to be at a downgrade interchange rate. It, it has no. nothing to do with that. Has nothing to do with that. Cool. Awesome. Well, there we great go. Question. So, yeah, great question. I really appreciate it. If you have a question, uh, feel free to email me, james at ccsalespro.com. I can't promise that I'll email you back or call you back, um, but either somebody from my team will follow up and or we'll just feature it on a show and uh, like this one and uh, we'll answer your question. So if you've got a question, send it over to me. I'd love to answer it.
Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production of Greensheet.com and CCSalesPro.com, and we hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.